I don't think there is anything better than singing gospel-saturated songs in preparation for hearing God speak to us through his word. And I am so thankful for Patrick and the worship team and, and just the songs that we sing as a church and, and our, our church culture wanting it to be gospel-saturated and gospel-focused. And as we spend this summer through the parables, we're looking at what God is speaking to us through these parables, these incredibly simple stories with profoundly deep meaning. We've already seen a couple of parables in the Good Samaritan and how we need to relate to the world around us, how we understand who our neighbor is, and that as we interact with the world around us, that is a reflection of our life in Christ and our love for our Savior and our God. And then a couple weeks ago, looking at the landowner and just his lavish grace and how he pours out that grace on the undeserving to the detriment of some, some who grumble and think that they are so entitled to more grace, and yet they're entitled to nothing. And yet, we are those people. We have a sense of entitlement, especially here in America. We are a self-made nation. We just celebrated our independence last week. We have this independent spirit that causes us to want to be autonomous. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We want to tell others what they ought to be doing. We want to justify ourselves. In church culture in America, in Christianity in America, we want to save ourselves. We want to participate somehow in a positive way towards our salvation. That causes us to be self-righteous legalists. I am not pointing my finger at any of you either. I am pointing my finger directly at me. Because as I have been confronting my own sin in my own heart, I look at myself and I realize I am a Pharisee at heart. And God has confronted me over these past several months in a very challenging way about my own self-righteousness. So this sermon is me preaching to me. You just happen to get to listen. I titled this sermon, A Tale of Two Sinners, and the text is Luke 7. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 36. If I were to give this sermon a subtitle, I would call it The Transformation of a Sinner. The Transformation of a Sinner. What I want to show you today is how Jesus handles the self-righteous and the sinner through four movements during this encounter. We're going to look at four things. This is truly the tale of two sinners. And we're going to look at first the setup, then the story, then number three, the sinners, and finally the salvation that occurs. The setup is seen in verses 36 to 39. The story that Jesus tells is in verses 40 to 43. The sinners are going to be contrasted in verses 44 to 47. And then we see the ultimate result, the salvation, in verses 48 to 50. Let's look at this text and read it together. Luke Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. 
Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one to whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them from her hair, with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she... Since the time I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Lord, we ask that you would open up the eyes of our heart, that you would shine the gospel light on our heart that would reveal our own sinfulness so that we can deal with it before you our infinite, eternal, loving, holy, righteous, and just God. We love you and we look forward to seeing you in this text this morning. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. During this time in Jesus' life and ministry, his fame is growing. This is before he begins to teach publicly in parables. This is before the events that has caused him to go into a completely parabolic teaching methods publicly. He has preached the greatest sermon he's ever preached. He's demonstrated authority over demons. He's demonstrated authority over sickness in healing Peter's mother-in-law, healing a paralytic man, healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. He's demonstrated that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's formally called 12 men to be his disciples. He's even raised someone from the dead, the widow's son in the town of Nain. And he is forgiving much sin, much to the chagrin of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because to them, they need to earn their salvation. They don't need forgiveness of sin. They just need to earn their salvation. What we need to see here is how Jesus, through four movements of this encounter, deals with that very issue. Salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So first, the setup. Let's look at this setup. 
one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. The first thing we need to notice is that this man is a Pharisee. Well, who are these Pharisees? What are they? They are the teachers in Israel. These are the men who control the synagogue. They control the religious education for all of Israel. They are the ones that set up the standard, if you will, for what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. Their righteousness exceeded that of every other person in Israel. So many people looked up to the Pharisees because of their standard of perfection and righteousness and the lives that they lived that they thought, I I will never be able to attain that kind of perfection. These Pharisees were perfect in their own eyes. And if they were going to invite anyone to eat with them, they would invite someone of like manner. So this Pharisee probably invited other Pharisees. Remember Paul, back in Philippians 3, when he talked about what he was like, his former manner of life? Listen to how he describes himself. In Philippians 3, starting in verse 2, he says, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and the glory and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Now listen to what he says here. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. In other words, perfect. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. That's what these men were like. That's what these Pharisees were in the eyes of the people and in their own eyes. So why in the world would a Pharisee invite Jesus to come and dine with him? What is Jesus doing there? Unfortunately, the text doesn't tell us. We don't know. We don't know if the motive was sincere. We don't know if the motive was sinister. We really don't know the motive behind why Jesus was there. But we do know that Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees was one of tension. There was an ongoing battle between Jesus and the Pharisees because every opportunity that Jesus had, he confronted their legalism. He confronted their self-righteousness. He confronted their self-justification. So we know that there was probably a little bit of tension going on here. And if Jesus were going to come in and recline at the table, he was probably not right next to this Pharisee that invited him. The interesting thing is that when you you have a feast like this, the Pharisees would probably be indoors. They could do it outdoors. There's a possibility that they would have a banquet table outside in a portico and covered with vines. But this is more than likely inside of his house. And what Pharisees often did, tradition tells us, is that they would leave the door to their home open so that people could come in and stand around the perimeter of the table, around the perimeter of the room, to listen to the conversation that was happening. Now, this table was a low table. They would be coming in. They'd be reclining on their left elbow and their left arm. Their feet were behind them because they were dirty. They didn't want their feet near the food. And they would be able to reach with their right arm to reach different pieces of food and drink their wine. 
And this is the setting. This is where Jesus is now. Probably down toward the other end of the table from where Simon is. And then we see the woman. All of a sudden, in verse 37, and there was a woman. In the Greek, it's, look, a woman. It's all of a sudden, this, this woman shows up on the scene. This is unheard of. Women don't just burst in to something that's hosted by men and attended by men. It is very unusual. And this woman understood that there was something special happening here. There was something very special going on, and she had to be a part of it. This is highly unusual. Women and men, and especially uh, women who were not your wife, you're not going to interact in this first century Palestinian culture. You're just not going to do it. And the text tells us this woman was in the city, and she was a sinner. This is no ordinary sinner in the eyes of the Pharisees. She is a special kind of sinner. She is an immoral woman. If she would marry, if she was married, she'd be considered an adulteress. If she was unmarried, she'd be considered a prostitute. She was absolutely immoral in their eyes, and there was no way they would ever allow her in their presence, let alone in their home. And this is happening in front of all of these Pharisees and Jesus. When she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Why, why that little note there? Why that little detail? Because this is something that is very expensive. This is a precious gift. This is something that may have cost upwards of a year's wages. This is not something that you would just take and give to somebody or use. She was saving this for a very special occasion. So something is happening here in this text that she recognizes is very special. And she wants to be a part of it. This woman was determined to see Jesus at all cost. To her dignity, to her person, she didn't care about her reputation one bit. She needed to see Jesus. And we know that because of the third thing, the third phase in this setup is her actions. Look at her actions in verse 38. She bursts into the scene. There is a boldness here. She comes into this scene where she is with all of these men, these Pharisees, these religious leaders of Israel that she has nothing to do with. She's bold in her entrance. We also see that she's silent. Not a word in this entire text is uttered by this woman. Only Jesus and Simon are talking. And then we also hear the other Pharisees around them muttering to themselves and mumbling. This woman is silent. What is she doing? She's standing behind him, weeping. This is not the ordinary term for just a sniffling cry. She is pouring out tears like rain onto Jesus' feet. This is an inconsolable weeping. She cannot stop it. She cannot control it. She cannot help herself. She is utterly beside herself in remorse and regret 
in pain over her sin because she knows that she was a sinner. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Her tears were so abundant that Jesus' feet, which were behind him, were getting soaked by the water from her eyes. Then she wipes them with the hair of her head. She had to get down on her knees, undo her hair, and wipe his feet with her hair. The Jewish Talmud, the the teaching of the Pharisees of the day, would say that any woman who let down her hair in public, it was tantamount to going topless in their eyes. So this act that this woman is doing is utterly scornful in their eyes. The Pharisees are judging her for her act of contrition, for her remorse, her repentance, if you will. She's kissing his feet. Would anybody in here like to come up? And I I took a shower this morning. I'll just take my boots and my socks off. Would you kiss my feet? No. No. In first century Palestine, think about what they wore. They wore sandals. Think about what they walked on. Dirt. Mud. Think about the condition of Jesus' feet. This woman is wiping them with her hair, wetting them with her tears, kissing them, and then anointing them with perfume. And not just any kind of perfume. This alabaster jar had to be broken open, and once the seal was broken, all bets were off as to whether or not the perfume would stay uh, good once it was exposed to the air. You had to use it. She is anointing his feet with this ultra-expensive perfume wiping this perfumed oil ointment on his feet. Wow. This is incredible. This scene is absolutely out of this world. And these people are witnessing this. I think that this woman is absolutely understanding what it looks like to be humble before the sight of God. James, in James 4, verses 5 through 10, he tells us, Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. What do you think is going to happen to this woman? In the presence of the Lord. We're going to see. But before we see what happens to her, we have to look at this reaction by the Pharisee. The Pharisee's reaction. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would know who and what sort of person this woman is 
who is touching him that she is a sinner. There's no indication that Simon says this out loud. He says it to himself, probably in his own mind. He looks at Jesus and he says, you're no prophet. Because if you were, you would know what was happening here. This word for touching implies the kind of intimate touching that would occur between a man and a woman in their marriage bed. It's as if this Pharisee is saying to Jesus, what do you think you're doing having this kind of an intimate encounter with a woman who is not your wife in public? Really? You're going to do this here in my house? Judging Jesus. Judging him. Well, Jesus doesn't allow this to pass. He takes full advantage of this moment, and he tells a story. So that brings us to our second movement of the four, and it's the story. And I love this. Jesus answered him. In the Greek, it says, Jesus answered and said to him. Kind of redundant. But it's important to know because Jesus is answering a question that was never asked. And he says to Simon something that Simon didn't understand exactly what was happening here. I think Simon got caught off guard. Jesus, in his deity, as a full human being, was able to understand and perceive Simon's thoughts. He then addresses those thoughts and says, I have something to say to you, Simon. And Simon replies, say it, teacher. Maybe Simon is thinking, finally, you're going to do something right. You're going to kick this woman out. You're going to admonish her. You're going to condemn her, judge her for who she is, that she should have never been here in the first place. But is that what Jesus does? Never. What Jesus does is tell Simon a story. And it's a really short story. This event, this parable, this whole interaction, this whole encounter only occurs in the Gospels here in Luke. We don't have it anywhere else. And this parable is all of a verse and a half long. It's really short. It's short, it's sweet, and it's to the point. And it digs right into Simon's heart. Look at what's, what, uh, what Jesus says. A moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. That's it. That's the story. We have a a banker and we have two guys that owe him money. If we were to put this in today's term, we have the bank that has two debtors. One owed $100,000, one owed $10,000. And the banker graciously forgave both debts. Why? Why would a bank do that? Banks don't stay in business by forgiving debt, especially that kind of debt. These men were bankrupt. They had nothing to pay with. They had no ability to earn the money back. They had no ability. They did not deserve forgiveness of debt. Jesus is here telling Simon, you have a debt, Simon, and you owe a debt to God for your sin. And God graciously forgives debt. So Jesus asked Simon, 
which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one to whom he forgave more. Can't you just see the eye roll? Can't you just hear the dripping sarcasm coming from Simon's mouth? From the statement that he makes? (laughs) Well, I guess if you're going to press me, I suppose the one that was forgiven more. Jesus lets that slide. And in his grace, in his compassion, in his merciful interaction with this legalistic Pharisee, says, you have judged correctly. You're right, Simon. Salvation comes through grace alone. Because you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. Just like the parable of the landowner. We don't deserve a denarius for manual labor. A denarius was reserved for skilled labor. They were already getting what they didn't deserve, and yet they grumbled and wanted more. Don't we do the same thing in our entitlement? We have much to repent of. Our sin runs deep. We have offended an infinitely holy, righteous God, a good God who loves us and will forgive sin. The law only brings death. Paul understood that when he wrote to the Roman church. He said in Romans 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for the Israelites, for the Jews, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. We are lawbreakers. God gave us the ability to have a relationship with, uh, with him, but we broke that relationship. And we need someone to restore that relationship, and that is Christ. But the only way that that can happen is it by God's grace. When God lavishes his grace on us and calls us to repent and believe in the gospel, he gives us the faith to do exactly that, and we must respond in faith. We are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. The reformers 500 years ago understood that and knew that, and they preached Christ. We preach Christ I hope that there is never a preacher in this pulpit that ever preaches anything but Christ. And if there is, you need to not let him back. Whether it's me or Patrick or Sergio or Micah, Tim, someday. We understand the gospel. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is what we must respond to. We've seen the setup. We've heard the story. Now let's look at the sinners. Number three, these sinners. Look at what Jesus does here. Verse 44. 
Turning toward the woman, he says to Simon, Jesus now turns behind him and is looking behind him at this woman kneeling at his feet, wiping his feet with her hair, anointing his feet with ointment, kissing his feet. He's looking at her, and yet he's still addressing Simon at the head of the table. He's down at the far end of the table. This woman is behind him. There's no possibility even that Simon may even be able to see this woman on the floor. But Jesus draws the attention to her. And he says, look at this woman. And he gives four rebukes to Simon with four contrasts of the sinner. Look at these four rebukes. Rebuke number one, he rebukes Simon's lack of dignity. Turning to Simon, or turning to the woman, he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Simon, you didn't even dignify me with the customary foot washing that is due every guest in your house. This was a common courtesy. This was customary. When you were invited to a banquet, you would ha- there would be a basin of water and someone would be there to wash your feet. Because they were dirty. They were filthy. And yet, Simon didn't even dignify Jesus with the custom, the common courtesy of a foot washing. And yet, this woman contrasted in an undignified manner gives Christ the dignity that he deserves by washing his feet. And not only that, but wiping them with her hair. It would be like inviting somebody to your house who just finished working for you. They're sweaty and they're hot. And you want to give them a, you know, give them something to eat, maybe a cold drink. And you just kind of, oh, you know what? Come through the house and come through the dining room. And you know what? I'm going to have you sit outside on the patio where the picnic table is. And, and oh, here's your drink. All right. Enjoy. Really? You're not going to dignify them and give them the opportunity to freshen up in your bathroom or maybe even take a shower, provide them with some clothing. That's what Simon did to Jesus. No common courtesy, no dignity. Number two, he rebukes Simon's lack of respect. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. It was a sign of respect that you would greet this person with a kiss of of affection on the cheek. It was just a kiss of greeting. It was a normal, everyday occurrence. You would show them respect by giving them a greeting of kiss. A kiss of greeting. It would be like me wanting to meet somebody for the first time and meeting them and not shaking their hand. Oh, nice to meet you. And just walk away. No respect. And yet this woman, in contrast, is continually kissing Jesus' feet. Number three, he rebukes Simon's lack of honor. Lack of honor. Verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Again, you would honor your guests by anointing just a drop of perfumed olive oil onto their head. Olive oil, 
common, everyday oil in ancient Near East. First century Palestine, first century Israel, it was everywhere. You didn't even give me the simplest honor, Simon, by just dropping a drop of perfumed olive oil on my head. And yet this woman brought an incredibly expensive alabaster vial of perfumed ointment and has wiped my feet with them, giving honor to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The honor due his name. And fourthly, he rebukes Simon's lack of affection. He rebukes Simon's lack of affection. Verse 47, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Simon, you don't care. You don't care about me. You don't care about the sinners. You don't care about the Jews. You don't care about anything but yourself. And yet this woman, she loves much. Because she has been forgiven much. When we read this in our English text, it almost seems like she was forgiven because of what she has done. That's not what it is. That's not at all what it is. When you look at this phrase here, has been, or for, for uh, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. That phrase in the Greek is a perfect passive indicative verb. I know that's a fancy term, but it's very important. Because what that means is that this woman's sins were forgiven way before this event ever took place. And they were forgiven before she ever did anything deserving of forgiveness. Her sins were forgiven by the gracious act of a loving God because she deserved nothing and yet got everything. Everything was forgiven. And as a result of that, she loves much. She knows that her sins have been forgiven and she is overwhelmed at her sin. And she can't help but express herself in this manner based on her forgiveness. It occurred before this event ever took place. And her response is overwhelming. Do we respond the same way? When we confess our sins? Do we confess our sins? Do we repent? What does that look like? I I just have all of these questions in my head rolling around after studying this passage. Well, Jesus shows us something about these sinners. Fourthly, uh, we see the salvation. We see the salvation that has occurred here. Verse 48, he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Your sins, all of them. Past, present, future, all of them. Forgiven, wiped clean. Jesus now turns his attention directly to this woman and describes her transformation in two ways. Forgiveness and faith. Forgiveness and faith. Her sins are forgiven. These scribes and these Pharisees, they can't handle this. Verse 49. Who is this man who even forgives sins, mumbling among themselves? Jesus doesn't even dignify their questioning of him with a response. Instead, 
he continues to focus lovingly on this woman. And he tells us in verse 50 why this salvation, why this transformation is complete. Your faith has saved you. Sola fide, faith alone saves. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Christ shows Simon, shows the Pharisees, shows all of those who were in the room around the table that salvation only occurs by grace through faith in Christ alone. What does the transformation of a sinner look like? Definitely not the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Are you repentant for your sins regularly? Does your repentance look like the woman's when confronted with the light of the gospel on your heart? When confronted by the gravity of your sin against a holy, righteous, infinite God? I think that there are three ways to demonstrate transformation as we kind of conclude our message. I want to give you three ways to demonstrate transformation after salvation. Three ways to demonstrate transformation. Number one, humility. Very simple. Humility. This woman humbled herself in ways that I can't even imagine. Peter, at the end of his life, toward the end of his life, finally kind of understood humility a little bit. And he writes in 1 Peter 5, he says, uh, starting in verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Isn't that exactly what just happened? This woman humbled herself under the mighty hand of God, and he exalted her. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Isn't that what she did? Weeping on Jesus, wiping his feet with her hair. Casting all of her anxiety on him. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Humble yourself. Number two, be bold. Be bold. Well, well, wait a minute, Brian. How can humility and boldness go hand in hand? Isn't that demonstrated here in this woman? She boldly went where no woman had ever gone before. You like that? That just came to me. She boldly went into this Pharisee's home. She boldly went before Christ. She boldly humbled herself. At his feet. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with boldness to the throne of grace 
Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Humility, boldness, and lastly, repentance. Repentance. Jesus came preaching, and when he preached in Mark chapter 1, he says, John had been taken into custody. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. And here it is. This is the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. What does that look like? I don't think there's any better source for understanding what repentance looks like outside of Scripture than Thomas Watson, the Puritan. He gives us incredible help to see what the nature of true repentance must look like in the transformation of a sinner. He gives six signs of true repentance in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance. I'm just going to give them to you real quick. Don't worry, you don't have to write them down. Six signs of true repentance. Number one, a sight of sin. See your sin the way God sees your sin. As an affront to an infinitely holy, righteous God. Number two, sorrow for sin. This is not merely remorse at being caught in sin or caught in something. This is something that you just absolutely cannot get over without going to the cross. Number three, confession of sin. Be particular as you list them out. Be specific. Take them to the fountain at the foot of the cross and resolve yourself never to act on them again. Be sure never to blame God for your sinful circumstances. Number four, shame for sin. Like this woman, we must understand that we are guilty and have put Christ to shame because we have loved something else more than him. Number five, hatred of sin. Not just some sin, but all sin. All sin in all parts of our life and in the life of the church. And lastly, turn from sin. And again, not just one sin, but from all sin in every aspect of our lives. And turn toward God. Turning from sin toward God. This woman did exactly that. Simon did not. As a result, this woman loved lavishly. How much do you love God? How much do you love others? How much do you love God's people at Christ Bible Church? May we be like this woman who was a sinner with many sins, who received full forgiveness and justification and loves lavishly. Would you pray with me? Blessed Spirit, author of all grace and comfort, come and work repentance in our souls. Represent sin to us in its odious colors that we may hate it. Melt our hearts by the majesty and mercy of God. Show us our ruined selves and the help there is in Jesus. Teach us to behold our Creator and His ability to save, His arms outstretched, His heart big for us. May we confide in his power and love, commit our souls to him without reservation, 
bear his image, observe his laws, pursue his service, and be through time and eternity a monument to the efficacy of his grace and a trophy of his victory. Make us unwilling to be saved. Make us willing to be saved in this way, perceiving nothing of ourselves, but all in Jesus. Help us not only to receive him, but to walk in him, depend upon him, commune with him, be conformed to him, and follow him. Imperfect, but still pressing forward. Not complaining of labor, but valuing rest. Not murmuring under trials, but thankful for our state. Give us that faith, which is the means of salvation and the principle and medium of all godliness. May we be saved by grace through faith. May we live by faith, feel the joy of faith, and do the work of faith. Perceiving nothing in ourselves, may we find in Christ wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Amen.